Moving right along to our second speaker, who is uh, Rafi Luba. He's again, I don't know what that word was about to be, but he is a gastroenterology um, fellow at the Alfred Hospital. Um, he is also a musical theatre enthusiast, and as a doctor, he is currently introducing young minds into the wonders of the large bowel. So uh, please make Rafi Luba very, feel very welcome. So, lo and behold, I am going to talk about a white man who grew up in a very privileged aspect of society. <laughs> but indulge with me for a moment while I introduce a couple of the other characters in our story. The first character is a man by the name of Louis Wyszkanski, who was a Lithuanian Jew who migrated to South Africa in 1922 at the age of nine. He fought in World War II and became a grocer in Cape Town. And while he was an avid sportsman, partaking in football, swimming, weightlifting, later in his life his health declined. He was a diabetic and had severe heart failure due to ischemic heart disease or lots of heart attacks. By 1967, at the age of 54, his symptoms were terrible and he was nearing the end of his life. In November 1967, he was admitted to Hotesquia Hospital in Cape Town with end-stage heart failure. Let me introduce you to our second character. Denise Darval was born in February 1942, growing up in Cape Town, South Africa. She worked as a bank clerk and her hobbies included designing her own clothes. On a fateful Sunday afternoon, 3rd December 1967, at the age of 25, her and her family were invited to afternoon tea at a friend's house. Along the way, her and her mother stopped off to buy a cake and while they were crossing the road, they were both hit by a car, killing Denise's mother instantly. Meanwhile, Denise was rushed off to Hrotesio Hospital with severe head injuries. Darval and Wyszkanski had never met, nor would they ever meet. Yet with the help of one charismatic and daring surgeon, they would be brought together in a figurative and literal sense and entered into the history books. That man was Christian Barnard. Christian Needling Barnard was born in November 1922 in Cape Town, South Africa. His father was a minister in the Dutch Reformed Church and he had one other sibling, Marius, who will come into our story a little bit later. They grew up poor and went to local public schools. However, both went on to study medicine at the University of Cape Town with Christian Barnard graduating in 1945. He did his internship and residency at Hrotesquia Hospital and then went on to become a general practitioner in a rural town in the Cape Province. However, unsatisfied with this, in 1956, he got a two-year scholarship to do post-grad training in cardiothoracic surgery at the University of Minnesota under open-heart surgery pioneers Norman Shumway and Walt Lillehei. He returned to South Africa in 1958 and was involved in setting up the first heart unit at Hrotesquia Hospital eventually become the head of cardiothoracic surgery and bringing his little brother along with him to, bring his, to be his right-hand man, man. Now, at this point in history, the concept of transplant medicine was really still in its infancy. The first kidney transplant had only recently been performed in 1953 in the US. And apart from steroids, effective immunosuppression was still some time away. It would still be another 20 years before 
the real dawn in transplant medicine came about in the form of the immunosuppressant cyclosporin. So we're still at the early stages. But following his return to South Africa, Barnard took a strong interest in transplant surgery, and he even performed South Africa's second kidney transplant. However, it was the heart and pioneering a previously untapped territory that really drove him, and he experimented with this for many years. Now, meanwhile, similar research and surgical developments were occurring at the same time across the seas in the US. His previous colleagues, Walt Lillehei and Norman Shumway, were going at heart and they were all competing to try and achieve the first heart transplant. Indeed, it was Shumway who transplanted the first dog in 1958. So by the mid-1960s, the Shumway group were convinced that they were at a precipice. The only thing in their way to achieving the first heart transplant was immunologic rejection. And by 67, there were several surgical teams around the world in place and in position to prepare for the first human heart transplant. Now all they needed was a patient willing to subject themselves to human experiment, and of course, a suitable donor. So by late 1967, nearing the end of his foreseeable life, Louis Wyszkanski was approached by Barnard. Barnard offered him the opportunity or offered him the chance to have a heart transplant. And famously, after only two minutes of thought, he agreed. He later, or Barnard later reflected that Wyszkanski had said, there's nothing to think about. I can't go on living like this. The way I'm now is not living. Years later, Barnard reflected and used a suitable African metaphor to describe Wyszkanski's position. And he said, for a dying man, it is not a difficult decision because he knows he is at the end. If a lion chases you to the bank of a river filled with crocodiles, you're going to leap into the water because you think you've got a chance to make it to the other side. And so Wyszkanski was prepared to leap into the water. So Barnard now had a willing patient. All he needed now was a donor. So on that night of December 3rd, 1967, that donor became available. After having found out that his wife had just died already, Mr. George Darval, father of Denise Darval, was soon to be told that his 25-year-old daughter had severe brain injuries and would not survive. He was asked whether he would donate her organs. And in a history-changing moment, he said yes, inspired by ever-generous nature. Now, much controversy actually surrounds the moments of Denise's actual death. So at that point in time, the Harvard criteria for brain death had not yet been devised and death was defined by cardiac death, or rather when the heart stops. So as such, there'd been a lot of mystery associated with the fact that on that night, after gaining consent, and despite having a healthy heart, Denise's heart suddenly stopped, allowing her to be declared dead and proceed to donation with due haste. For 40 years, that mystery would remain a mystery, kept by Barnard and his brother Marius. But after Barnard's death, Marius would go on to reveal that on that night, at Marius's urging, Christian had injected potassium into Denise's heart to paralyse it and thus render her technically dead. To Norman Shumway, who was across the seas in America, Barnard's colleague and, and competitor, his surgical feat of transplant was actually outweighed by his decision to use his brain-dead donor brain-dead victim as the donor. See, whatever the ambitions the Americans had at trying to be the first 
surgeons to transplant a patient, they were, the, the medical ethics prevailing at the time were against them. They were against using the heart of someone who was brain dead while the heart was still functioning, which is something we do commonly these days. But Barnard himself acknowledged that things in South Africa were quite different. He said, we didn't have the legal restraints that exist in America. I didn't even ask the hospital authorities if I could do the first transplant. I just told them after I'd done it. <laughs> Imagine that happening here. I'm not sure how many of you have been to South Africa, but uh, as they say there, TIA, this is Africa. And so Barnard, albeit through questionable ethical process, pioneered the pathway to, brain, to the use of brain-dead victims for organ transplantation, which has ultimately become commonplace and allowed heart transplant to become standard of care. Let's go back to our story. So the transplant operation itself was successful. Denise Darval's heart was beating on its own within Louis Wyszkanski's chest, and all the major newspapers around the world covered the story and covered the day-by-day -day condition of Wyszkanski. Rightly so, Barnard was very concerned about rejection of the foreign heart. To ensure this didn't happen, Wyszkanski was on a high dose of immunosuppression from the beginning. So when he began to deteriorate, these doses were increased with the assumption that rejection was taking place. Unfortunately, it was infection in the form of pneumonia. And so in the setting of his weakened immune system and escalating doses of immunosuppression, Wyszkanski died 18 days after the operation. Nonetheless, it was considered a success, and within a month, Barnard was back to perform the second heart transplant, replacing the heart of Dr. Philip Bleiberg, a 55-year-old dentist. And with the lessons of Wyszkanski fresh in their mind, the immunosuppressant doses were lowered, and Bleiberg lived for 20 months with his new heart. This was the start of a new era. After those operations, the surgeons in Europe and the United States started performing heart transplants. Barnard would go on to achieve international fame. Almost overnight, his surgical skill and daring catapulted him to the position of international savant. He was invited to tour the world, not only lecturing in heart surgery, but to talk and give interviews on topics he knew absolutely nothing about. He readily obliged. <laughs> With his good looks and quick wit, he clearly enjoyed the limelight. As he said, any man who doesn't like the applause and recognition is either a fool or a liar. He transformed himself into something of an international playboy, soon becoming involved in a tempestuous public affair with an Italian actress and international sex symbol. Indeed, the French news magazine Paris Match even named him as one of the world's greatest lovers at the time. <laughs> in 1970, at the age of 48, his womanising surgeon image has left his first marriage in tatters, and it ended after 22 years. But this didn't slow the man, as soon after he married the 19-year-old daughter of a multi-millionaire South African industrialist. Alas, as the story goes, this wasn't to last either, and at the age of 63, he married a 22-year-old model. <laughs> that too didn't last, and you wonder where the surgical uh, stereotype comes from. Through the course of these three marriages, he had six children that he knew of and largely became estranged from all of them. In the 1970s, sorry, in his 70s, he wrote his final book, 50 Ways to a Healthy Heart. 
And one of the ways he espoused, and one that he certainly followed his own advice on, was as he writes, having sex, preferably coupled with romance, being the most beautiful, healthiest, and most pleasurable way to keep the circulation in gear and keep the heart healthy. But Barnard was active outside of the bedroom too. In the midst of the dark days of apartheid South Africa, he campaigned for black doctors to have equal pay with whites. He employed non-white nurses to treat white patients, and he operated on blacks and whites according to their needs. These practices were groundbreaking at the time. As he grew older, however, he became obsessed with the idea of prolonging youth. He became embroiled in the quackery of narcissism, endorsing rejuvenation treatments like injecting oneself with embryo cells from animal hearts, brains, lungs, testes, and even acknowledged injecting himself with these things. In his later years, estranged from his family, he spent much of his time in the Greek islands, where he continued exploring his fondness of wine and women. And then in 2001, at the age of 78, he died alone in Cyprus. Ironically, the cause of death thought to be a heart attack. Christian Barnard was a surgeon, pioneer and career womanizer that no doubt inspired many a surgeon after him for all those reasons. <laughs> With the help of Louis Wyshkansky, the first recipient, Denise Darval, the first donor, the three went on to change history. Thank you.